I'd like to speak tonight about this process of awakening our hearts through this technique of vipassana, mindfulness, training our attention into the present moment. And here you are, um, about 24 hours into silent, intensive training. How many times do you think you've brought your attention back to the present in the last 24 hours? Could you imagine if you had like a little clicker? Like... Every time you returned, reconnected, hundreds, thousands, probably not millions, but thousands of times, our attention gets drawn into the thinking mind's stories about the future, plans, fantasies desires, hopes, cravings. Have you noticed that? (laughs) Drawn into the past. Some of those memories, some of the past is uh, quite a nice way to spend a few minutes. Reminiscing about pleasant experiences that we've had, remembering good times. Sometimes the content of our thoughts about the past is unpleasant, as the resentments we're angry about when she said, when he said, when they did. Regrets. And that the instruction is pay attention to the present. Sometimes we say present moment, but the more we pay attention, the more clear it becomes that their uh, impermanence is too fast to land on a moment to pay attention to. Have you noticed that yet? You're trying to catch the present moment. (laughs) It's like, well, it was there a minute ago, but now the present is in the past. By the time you even put the label... Present, oh, that's gone. (laughs) Present, gone. You get like half of it out. Prez, gone. So it feels much more like what we're doing is paying attention to the present process of time unfolding. Because there's nowhere to land. There's no moment to cling to, to land on, and to hang out with. We can't connect with a moment because that moment is just so transient, so uh, impossible to actually sustain because it's just too fast. Using the object of the breath. Very helpful because it's a present time experience that's 
constant, your body, the body, our bodies are breathing. If we're alive, (laughs) the body's breathing and there's some sensation and it's a great, subtle but great uh, object to be able to be with the process of. Again, there's nothing stable or permanent in it. It's an impermanent process of sensation coming in and sensation going out. Becomes clear fairly quickly that uh, although the instruction is very simple, it's incredibly difficult to sustain present time awareness. There's something about this human form with the way that our minds and bodies have evolved at this point, at this point in our evolution, where present time awareness is rare. And that very, very often our awareness is into the future or stuck in the past. And that to just be with what's happening right now is in itself an incredibly challenging task. Just to get the mind to connect and sustain awareness of the present unfolding. The Buddha, uh, as I mentioned this morning, I think, referred to that tendency of mind as the monkey mind. And that that is actually the untrained mind uh, tendency, that that's the norm for us human beings, is to have a, a mind that swings to the future, swings to the past. I can't help also by thinking of monkeys and the kind of uh, uh, reputation of monkeys in the zoo to throw their... Uh, feces at uh, passing. I don't know if that's true. It's never actually happened to me. (laughs) But there's certainly, um, monkeys have this reputation of uh, slinging their poo at you. I guess we'd find out at the end of the talk. (laughs) I like the talk. And I certainly feel like my mind is throwing all kinds of shit at me all day (laughs) while I'm meditating. Sitting here, trying to meet with kind awareness, the present time unfolding process of being, And the monkey mind making all kinds of judgments and comparisons and fears and I'm not doing it right and everybody else looks much happier than I feel. You had that thought today? They're all, look at, they look so peaceful. They're just sitting there, walking so peacefully, sitting so upright and dignified. Uh, And we forget that, oh, actually, they have a monkey mind, too, just like me. They probably think I look good. They probably think I look happy. And we forget that uh, everyone is dealing with this monkey mind, that this is the universal human experience. That every single one of us is suffering some, experiencing the 
unsatisfactory nature of having a mind that is judgmental and critical and compares itself to others and experiences insecurity and the uh, dukkha, the first noble truth, the dukkha, the difficulty of being human that we all share reveals itself loud and clear as we sit with the intention to just be mindful, to just be present And what we see, one level of what we see, is all of the things that are blocking our ability to be at ease. And it's part of the Dharma, it's part of the truth, our suffering, our monkey mind... It's not actually the enemy and it's not because we're doing anything wrong. And it's not, there's no shortcut. There's no way to happiness, to freedom, to liberation that goes around facing directly the difficult Uh, aspects of our mind and heart. And the uh, relationship to the body. There's no way around it. Trying to get around it is one of the main problems And this practice, mindfulness, is a path directly through the center. Right into the heart of the judging mind, of the monkey mind, of our biological human survival instinct that hates to be uncomfortable. Our survival instinct that uh, in order to survive despises unpleasant experiences. And sends somatic body thoughts and feelings to us constantly that says, avoid this unpleasantness. Escape from it. Ignore it. Suppress it. Push it away. Take something. Do something. Don't just sit there. (laughs) Do something. Your mind told you that a few times today? You should do something about this. You should fix it. Maybe if we thought about it long enough, we could fix it. So we come in direct contact with Aversion, uh, which is the seed of hatred, which is manifesting as resentments, which is manifesting as resistance to pain. And its friend and the other uh, core piece of our human biological makeup, evolutionary survival instinct, which is craving for pleasure. If this could only feel better than it does, 
If this could only be more pleasant, less painful. And this being everything all of the time. (laughs) And when it does finally get to that pleasant spot, then this uh, natural, again, I, I feel like survival instinct that says, okay, here's the pleasure I've been looking for. How can I hold on to it? How can I control it? How can I just keep it? I've got it. Okay, I got there. Seven hours ago, I had this moment of peace during my meditation. How can I get back to that? And all of the clinging and craving and attachment that you've been observing all day I wish it were different. That is the, uh, you see how when your mind does wander, when our minds wander, it's always some craving, some aversion, some, the plans, they're also craving. The resentments, they're also aversion. The fantasies, what are those fantasies that you get lost in? What are they fueled by? Are they pleasant? Are they unpleasant? As you sit here and uh, in your meditation you get these creative inspirations and I'm just going to write that song that's going to change the world. I'm going to write that book that's just going to be the great novel of the modern age. And all of it, craving, craving. So right here in the present, as we train our mind, we see more and more clearly the first noble truth, the difficult situation we're faced with, the dukkha, and we see the cause, the craving, the aversion, the self-centeredness, But each time we return to the present, over and over, uh, the monkey mind starts to be tamed. Starts to calm down. Starts to uh, eventually say, okay, (laughs) just going to be here, sitting and walking, okay. One more mindful breath. And maybe even at some point uh, in the training, we move from that restless, distracted monkey mind to an ability to connect, sustain attention for at least periods, and then interest and investigation come in. Okay, what is happening right now? What's my relationship to what's happening? And this is where I feel like uh, we, we give a lot of encouragement towards compassion and kindness and the, the loving kindness instructions and this beautiful experience that, that Vinny guided us in this afternoon. And it's wonderful to put that out front as an uh, intentional relationship to, to the present, to what's happening. But it feels like to me, uh, what can also happen, and perhaps my idea of what happened for the Buddha, was that by simply sitting and attending to the present, with this quality of investigation, And and to me, this feels not even really like spiritual practice, much more like scientific, psychological inquiry. 
but that when we face the pain, as the Buddha faced the reality of the unpleasant nature of so much of what we experience with this human mind and body, and and saw clearly that the natural, unenlightened, reactive tendency is to push, to get angry, and to meet pain with hatred. And so, oh, but this doesn't work. This doesn't work if you want to be happy. Because each time we meet pain with hatred, the Buddha clearly sitting mindfully saw for himself, oh, when I push on it, when I try to get rid of it or avoid it or suppress it, it makes it worse. It increases my unhappiness, my dissatisfaction. And through trial and error, I I look at the Buddha as this uh, you know, just experimenting. What's going to end suffering? What's going to create freedom? And as far as we know, nobody taught the Buddha about compassion. He went and he studied with this guru and that guru and he went into the ascetic practices and he learned a lot about discipline, a lot about concentration, a lot about renunciation. But mindfulness was something that he discovered. He said, this concentrating is useful. It allows me to get focused and avoid my problems, but it doesn't allow me to relate wisely and see through the causes and conditions that create suffering. And so mindfulness becoming the tool, becoming his practice... And compassion being the discovery of this is the only thing that works. This is the only wise relationship to pain. As we sit here training our minds back over and over. And we try everything first. Let me try to push it away. Let me try to hold on. Let me try to think my way through this. What eventually becomes clear is that compassion, this quality of heart uh, that gets awakened, is the only wise relationship to pain. Everything else is ignorant. Is unskillful. And is really a dead end. Are you following me? This practice of mindfulness, even if we weren't doing metta, awakens the quality of compassion simply through connecting and reconnecting and reconnecting over and over our attention in the present. And in the present we see the pleasant and unpleasant and neutral nature of thoughts and feelings and the breath itself and the footsteps. And all of our sense doors, stimulating by pleasure, stimulated by pleasure and pain. I'm not certain because I'm not that much of a scholar, but it feels to me uh, like you know the first the Buddha began teaching just the four noble truths the Eightfold Path, teaching anatta and and encouraging people to uh, 
see through this creation of a permanent self and on some level to me and not be so self-centered to not take it all so personally you won't you know you don't take your mind and body so personally you won't suffer so much it's good advice it's true the metta sutta and the greater encouragement towards compassion and the brahma vihara teachings didn't come uh, until maybe 10 years into the buddha's enlightened life his teaching career. In the beginning, he was just teaching vipassana, just mindfulness. Because his experience of just doing mindfulness led to compassion. Faced with the reality of the pain and the pleasure. The quality of heart, the Brahma-vihara, the quality of heart, was awakened of the wise relationship to pain, is compassion. It feels to me like eventually he realized that uh, actually it would be helpful if I teach people (laughs) uh, to incline their heart and their mind towards compassion rather than just waiting for it to be awakened through the mindfulness practice. Uh, Not that it's a shortcut, but that it's just helpful to uh, have that intention for it to uncover. The other uh, major piece, as I said before, uh, sitting, walking, and turning off the distractions of entertainment and communication. And we see so clearly uh, that craving, the tanha, the second noble truth, the craving for pleasure. And the clinging that happens when we get it. The attachment. And the attachment wouldn't be a problem if we could control it. Wouldn't that be nice if you could just look, get a hold of it and just, (laughs) okay, I got there. Cool. I'll just stay in this happy place. But because our world and our internal and external reality is ruled by impermanence so clearly, clinging and craving and attachment always hurt. Always, 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 always create unnecessary suffering. So then again, uh, our mindfulness shows us, okay, I'm here, clinging doesn't work, I'll let go, I'll let go. Over and over, releasing, releasing. Uh, My teacher's teacher, Ajahn Chah, the Thai forest master, At one point is quoted to have saying that really in some way we can just boil this whole practice down to letting go. Let go of the past, let go of the future. Let go of what you're clinging to in the present. Let go, let go, let go. He says if you uh, let go a little bit, just relax your grip. <laughs> You will have a little bit of happiness in your life. A little bit of ease. He said if you let go uh, a lot, that you will have a lot of well-being, a lot of happiness, a lot of freedom. And that if, if and when we really 
we can completely let go. And of course, that's only in one, a moment at a time. We completely let go for one moment. <laughs> when we really let go, then we have the liberation of the Buddha. Then we have, he says, then your mind becomes like a still forest pool and all kinds of strange and wonderful animals will come to take a drink from the forest pool. But you will be happy and that this is the happiness. You will be still, you will be free, you will be untouched and that this is the happiness of the Buddha. I like that image that also, um, it's like, okay, so you're chill, you're still, but the strange animals are still coming to visit, but your mind. Right? That it's not this sort of complete lobotomy, but that actually there's a stillness, a non attachment, and a, an ease, but still these kind of strange and wonderful thoughts visit the mind, but no suffering about them. So letting go, letting go, changing our relationship, we're present, we're mindful, we're trying our best to meet the pain with tolerance, with mercy, with compassion. Trying our best to meet the pleasant feelings and the natural cravings that arrive, arise with non-attachment. And when you're enjoying your sitting or your walking or your tea or your meal, the practice becomes meeting that experience with non-attached appreciation. And this quality of gratitude and acceptance and appreciation as the wise relationship to pleasure becomes uncovered. Rather than clinging to it and trying to hoard it and keep it, Impermanence shows us that there's nothing that we can hold on to. So the only wise relationship to this enjoyable, momentary experience is enjoying it as it comes through. As soon as we grip it, we ruin it, let go. But sometimes this letting go uh, I think in, in our Buddhist circles, can almost become like, well, then I better not be involved in pleasure. And, and we get this sort of renunciation, uh, sometimes to an extreme, that says, like, I better avoid pleasant things, and I certainly shouldn't indulge in pleasure. There is nothing wrong with pleasure. It's clinging that is the problem. Our practice becomes, how can we enjoy the pleasant experiences that are appropriate and, and, and present themselves, especially in retreat, where it's like, well, you're not. <laughs> this is just the, the, the pleasure of mindfulness. How do we enjoy them without clinging, non-attached appreciation? towards our own pleasure, and then that also gets developed into uh, sympathetic joy and appreciating uh, and enjoying the happiness and success and pleasure of others. This opposite of the human emotion of jealousy. Rather than feeling jealous and threatened when... Or even that comparing mind here on retreat, and you're like, but they're... They must be happy. They look so peaceful. And instead of like feeling upset by that and bad about yourself, 
feeling like, well, I hope they are awesome for them. May their happiness and peace continue and increase rather than me feeling threatened by your happiness. I was just in the Netherlands before I came here and um, I don't know what the Dutch word is, but in English, when I, people would say goodbye to me, they would say, success. I don't know, it's, I guess it's the greeting. that, Like kind of goodbye, it's just like this, in the whole language, just, I wish you success. I love that. That's, that is what the Buddha was talking about. <laughs> I wish you success. Is this perspective making sense, resonating? Mindfulness. I'm not sure that this is a quote from the Buddha, but it gets thrown around sometimes, that everything, that all of the Dharma, everything that we need uh, to be liberated will be revealed in this body. And it's what the Buddha did, right? He turned his attention inward and he, compassion, kindness, forgiveness, mercy, appreciation, revealed through present time investigative awareness. It's here in us. And mindfulness allows us to uncover it, to access it, to surrender the battle of trying to think our way to happiness or fight our way against pain or uh, what collect and hoard and <laughs> attach uh, ourselves to pleasure. Over and over returning with the uh, inquiry, what is the wise relationship to this moment? We, we talked last night about Ajahn Sumedho's, right now it's like this. And I think that's brilliant, right? It is like this. But there's another question. <laughs> okay, it's like this, and I am angry. <laughs> What's the wise relationship? What's causing this anger? How was I hurt? What's underneath the anger? What's, uh, it's like this, I'm angry. What's going to end this? How, how, who do I need to forgive? How can I meet this anger with some kindness with some compassion not just it's like this and i'm just, and i'm completely suffering and i'm going to just accept that suffering it's like this and i have some influence over how i relate to it i can incline my heart towards compassion i can it's like this and it's pleasurable and i can incline my heart towards non-attached appreciation Mindfulness is the foundation. Now the one other thing that I wanted to shift gears and point towards a little bit is that... um, (laughs) 
as I'm sure that you have noticed, whether you're new to practice or you've been practicing for many, many years, the difficult and um, the difficult, what, what we call hindrances, and the, the negative, afflictive emotions, and some of that stuff I was talking about earlier in the talk about the judging mind and fear and lust. And, uh, as you've noticed, it doesn't go away. Even if you put your attention on your breath and the mind is in the background, that stuff, it's just part of our human experience. The hindrances that the Buddha talked about, the things that make it really difficult to, to be free, but also just to be mindful. Talked about the craving and the aversion, but also the restlessness and anxiety that the human body goes through. That it's just a natural part. It's hard to sit still. It's hard to uh, connect and sustain attention with the unfolding process of the present time. Or it's opposite, and I was uh, uh, having quite a bit of sleepiness today, and the sloth and torpor and... uh, so hard to be mindful and responding in the wise way when you're dull, when your mind is sleepy. Or when the mind is being convincing. To I think part of that sloth and torpor is also procrastination. Is also that sort of, I'll put it off. I'll do it later. And the most difficult hindrance and uh, natural human experience that we all have to contend with, as the Buddha did, is that of doubt. And whether that is self-doubt and uh, doubting about our own worth, Vinnie pointed to in our metta today, that 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 heartbreaking reality that so many of us have to face that we we doubt that we're even worthy of our own love of our own kindness or doubt in the teachings and practices doubt in the actual possibility So many uh, philosophies have been created uh, with kind of doubt (laughs) at the center. This sort of, let's make philosophies that normalize uh, the impossibility of happiness. (laughs) Because I haven't been able to get there, so let's create a whole idea about how it's basically impossible um, without divine intervention or, you know... At least chemical intervention. I believe that the Buddha was referring to this uh, quality of our human experience, this aspect of the human mind, universal, we all share, uh, when he was talking about his battles and his ongoing relationship with Mara. Mara attacks with lust, with anger, with doubt, with fear. It's clear to me that Mara is not an external force, that Mara is an analogy for that experience, uh, psychological, emotional experience. The Buddha defeats Mara by meeting, attacks with compassion, lust with non-attachment, non-identification, doubt with confidence, 
And it really defeats Mara by, with anatta, with not taking Mara as self anymore, seeing through it. Seeing this is not, these doubts, these fears, they're not who we are. This lust, this aversion, not to be taken personal. It's impersonal. One of my friends and teachers, Wes Nisker, he said, after 40 years of intense Vipassana practice, I've come to one simple solution or uh, conclusion. He says, I am not my fault. not your fault. Mara is not your fault. Fear? Aversion? Craving? This is the human condition that the Buddha was pointing us towards the possibility through mindfulness and heartfulness of changing our relationship to. Not getting rid of, not transcending, but diving directly into the heart of the human condition and learning to not take it so personal and learning to respond with wisdom and compassion. The good news is, it's really possible for us to wake up in this lifetime. The bad news is that waking up includes Mara as a lifelong companion. Your fear and craving and aversion and doubt is never going away. No matter how much you meditate. Even at full enlightenment, Mara did not leave the Buddha. For the rest of the enlightened Buddha's life, Mara continued to check in with him regularly. Hey Buddha, you still paying attention? You still being mindful? Can I catch you slipping? (laughs) Are you distracted? Over and over, Mara returns to the Buddha in the suttas. The point being, our practice is to, as the Tibetan Buddhists say, invite the demons in for tea. Turn towards these difficult states, not away from them. To change our relationship to the mind and the heart, the body. Our relationship to the world. As uh, I think Vinny said this morning, rather than always constantly rearranging the furniture (laughs) in our apartment, changing our relationship to the furniture. Oh, this is the furniture of being human. It includes fear. It includes craving. It includes really not liking unpleasant sensations. (laughs) Compassion is our only hope and it is available. Non-attached appreciation is our only hope and it is available. Not taking it all as self is our only hope. And it is available. And this practice will reveal all of it directly to us. Not based on faith, not based on belief in someone else, but in our own direct experience. but it takes some time. 
At one point, the Buddha said, uh, he was asked how long. There's this question, how long is it going to take me? His first answer was seven years. It's not bad. Would you give seven years of your life to really be free, really be happy, be awake? And then he said, oh no, actually maybe brought it down. Maybe 70 days. Or seven, I think they went seven months, 70. And he, he, the, the final answer, it's like one of those game shows. My final answer, I said seven days. So here you are one day into your intensive mindfulness practice. Six more days, you could be fully liberated next week. course my own i think that maybe that's seven days without wandering off into the future and past (laughs) how much of the last 24 hours have you actually been present (laughs) have you gotten an hour out of the last 24 two hours three hours And the Dalai Lama was asked this question about how long. He said, I don't know the answer. It's different for everyone. Everyone has different karma to to work out. Uh, He said, but my suggestion is that you just really commit and that you check in on your progress once every decade or so. (laughs) I think that's even better than thinking about seven days, but thinking about this is a way... To come into retreat and train in this intensive environment. But the mindfulness is something to live. Present time awareness. Compassionate response. Non-attached appreciation. The awakened heart. Uncovered more and more. Accessed more and more easily over the years. And what else are we going to do with this life? It's the only game in town, as far as I can tell. Let's sit for a moment. 